Hey, everybody! It is Yasser! I forgot my line. I'm just kidding. It's Isaiah! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We are from my brother Sneaker, and we've got a little announcement. We are teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you three exclusive uh, episodes. Uh, Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moment from a ton of podcasts and creates playlist clips from a bunch of shows. And you can just search and try them out and find anything that you love. For instance... Oh, yeah. There's a playlist on there uh, called Slice of Life, which is all about like crazy, incredible things that happen to everyday people. Like, I just learned this, bro. I just learned some people pay their bills on time, dog. Oh, is that a thing? Dog, people will have a bill due date and they will pay that bill before then. That's crazy to me. Before then. You know what else is crazy? What? Spook also has a a lot of fun, exclusive content from Feral Audio. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, like our tournament episodes, they're going to be, oh, like, yeah. you know, there's going to be stuff like Sleep With Me, a lot of our, our other great shows here at Feral. You don't want to miss it. Yep. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of my brother's sneakers exclusive Spoke episodes at hearspoke.com slash my brother's sneakers. Model boys, cute boys, round butt boys all day. Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T-L-D, you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again, break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FERAL and check out and get it. I 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Feral Audio. Hello and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I don't think after 99 episodes and a bitch ain't one, had to make the bad, bad joke. I'm really sorry. I think after 99 episodes, I don't need to say I'm Matt Dwyer anymore. Or do I? I don't know. I think most of us have caught on to the fact that I'm Matt Dwyer. Uh, but if you haven't, for some reason, this is the first time listening to the show. If you haven't listened before, it is just what the title there implies. It's uh, me talking to some people, uh, you know, a free-formed conversation, and uh, today's guest is really incredible. Dave Densmore, he's a poet and a fisherman, which I was unaware there's a huge culture of uh, poet fishermen and fisherwomen out there. Dave's episode is like Jack London in its grandiose uh, stature of stories. (laughs) It's like, I mean, surviving uh, on a life raft, uh, fighting a bear or shooting a bear like at 13... The stories are incredible. Uh, So you really, really want to listen to Dave Densmore. 
uh, talk, and he's an incredibly cool, charming dude. Uh, probably, I think, like, if you live that life in a, in a fishing boat and you see that much death and struggle, you're probably near enlightened. Because uh, that's just a different realm of world than I'm used to with uh, cable television and cushy chairs. Uh, not to say that Dave doesn't have cushy chairs, but he appreciate when he sits down in a cushy chair, he's like, I just fought Mother C. I deserve this goddamn cushy chair. Where I'm like, I fought the self-checkout line at the Ralph's. I really deserve this cushy chair. <laughs> so, and he talks about that appreciation for life in this episode of, you know, when you when you stare a few things in the face like death and uh, animals that'll tear you to shreds, yeah, you look at life a little bit more uh, on a grounded level. Uh, it's an incredible... But before we get to that episode or this conversation... I just want to say real quickly, uh, I thank you for listening. Uh, I, I, I'm coming near 100 episodes, and it's been really great. Oh, and by the way, Dave was going to be a part of the road trip that I'm taking up to Astoria, Oregon, but he couldn't do that episode. So, uh, he's going to be out of town fishing, so I, so uh, <clears throat> we did this over the phone. But uh, I, uh, if you, you've been supporting my show, there's a really easy way to support Conversations with Matt Dwyer, and that's anytime you go to buy something online or even in general uh, – Go to my page uh, at feralaudio.com. Go to the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page. Go to the link, the Amazon link, and do buy your tube socks, your underwear, your Hanes underwear, your cleaning supplies, your office supplies, your, your cartridges for your, for your printers, uh, your Cheerios. You can buy Cheerios. In some states, you can buy your groceries, and they'll deliver them to you. Your books, your music, your movies. Buy that through the... the Conversations with Matt Dwyer, Amazon link, and we get a percentage of that money. Uh, it's a very small percentage, but it adds up over time, and it really helps. I need a new recorder, uh, so that would be really helpful. And also, there's an Amazon link at thematdwyer.com. Visit my webpage for anything. Find out where I'm doing shows. Uh, find out more about the road trip that we're doing uh, where we're going to interview a bunch of people on the road. Uh, if you want to stalk and kill me, the website is a good place to do that. You'll know where I'm going to be. Uh, you're going to know, sometimes you'll know specific times where I'll be, and you could really just hurt me. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to tell you where I'm going to have dinner. Eh, you never know. Yeah, Twitter. Twitter, sometimes I'm like, hey, I'm chowing down at Musso and Frank on uh, the Hollywood Boulevard there. That's a good place to come, you know, busy restaurant. Come put, you know, come hurt, come put the hurt on Matt Dwyer. Uh, but please use the Amazon link at Converse, the Conversations with Matt Dwyer page or go to themattdwyer.com. That, it will help us out so much. If everybody who listens to my show shop through there, uh, I could update my, my recording equipment. And that I'm not even asking you for money. I'm just adding, asking you to put your Amazon link on uh, my Amazon link on the, your toolbar there. And then uh, that's, that'll help me out. Uh, enough of my garbage. Let's just get to Dave Densmore. This is an incredible conversation. You're really going to love it. Thank you for listening. Is commercial fishing a dying culture? Uh, a lot of people think it is. I don't believe it is. People are going to have to eat and have protein, and uh, if we take care of the oceans, it doesn't have to be a dying culture. Is fishing something that is constantly changing? 
It, it's changing. It's in the. It's in. It's in evolution. Let's say. Put it this way. Hey. Hey. Amen. Uh, it's it's in the it's evolving and to the point where it's getting more and more industrialized. You know the boats are stronger and uh, more efficient, and so on. So and that's hard on the industry. Actually, that's hard on the uh, hard on the resource. But uh, also people are becoming more and more aware. So it's uh, we just have to strike a balance. Do you fish crab or all kinds of fish like salmon? Yeah, this uh, now I, I just fish salmon. I used to fish halibut and king crab and, and the whole works, but uh, now I just fish salmon about four months a year from first uh, of June to uh, mid-September. Does the danger level vary with which kind of fish you're going after, or is it is it all the same? Well, no, uh, it's not all the same. Uh, the king crabbing is is more dangerous in some ways because you're dealing with big, heavy crab pots, and uh, winter weather. It's a winter fishery. Anytime you have a winter fishery, well, you know you're uh, you have to be really on your toes and, and be careful. And uh, the Bering Sea can come up so quick. All the oceans. I'll tell you, I, I, everybody makes a big deal of the Bering Sea, but after being on the East Coast and seeing what happened to some of those guys in the wintertime where they ice up and roll over and, and fighting some of those North Atlantic storms, it's all dangerous. It's all great, and it's all dangerous. You know, in the summertime, we don't lose many people salmon saying in the summertime. Uh, I could say that. But but still, you know, it's it's an ocean, and every once in a while somebody... Something happens, and that's just the way it is. It is a it's a dangerous profession, but it's uh, it's uh, there's uh, uh, a lot more awareness of the danger and how to try to combat it. And I'll set it now than what there used to be. Every time you head out fishing, do you think the, about the danger and and that this is the last time you could be going out? No, it, it's I don't even think about that. Although uh, I I am aware of the danger and on the boat. I really harp on safety quite a bit and, and uh, keep an eye on my crew, especially uh, green crew members. Uh, I'm trying to keep them out of harm's way as much as possible. I don't want somebody getting hurt or killed on my boat. And so I try, you know, I try to uh, uh, be uh, aware. And we have a, do a little training uh, uh, training sessions and so on. Uh, this is what happens if you do this and so on. And uh, both uh, Renee and I uh, have gone. The Coast Guard now is putting on uh, deals for safety. Uh, 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 they give instruction on being a safety instructor, and uh, we went and got certified. That. And it was pretty interesting. Uh, you know, I've been fishing all my life, been on the ocean all my life. I've been in two different life rafts and uh, so on. But uh, I learned something there. So it uh, it's... Like I said, the awareness is going a lot higher than what it was years back. Our mutual friend mentioned that you had to survive on a life raft for a while. Yeah, I had a, a king crab boat burn up in the Bering Sea years ago. I spent four days or four nights in a life raft. The fourth night, early in the morning, we got to end up actually getting run over by a Japanese trawler. They hit the raft. They didn't see us. It was snowing and dark yet, and they they were just they were fishing. They were towing their big nets and. Uh, <laughs> just happened that we were right squarely in front of them. They hit the raft and flipped it upside down and threw me out. My engineer jumped for the anchor, and uh, uh, when I come out of the water, got my head above water while he was already sitting on the bottom of the raft, and two other guys were trapped inside. Or they weren't really trapped, but they were inside standing on the canopy because it was upside down. 
But they uh, they heard there was one guy on deck and he heard us hollering and ran up to the wheelhouse and got the boat stopped and they picked us up. The Bering Sea is always freezing, isn't it? Yeah, it was cold. It was cold. We were actually um, there was the uh, ice on the water when we left uh, on Alaska and we're breaking ice on the way out of the Turian Basin and then uh, yeah. It, uh, the temperature dropped and uh, it was snowing sideways and blowing 60, 70. So it was, it and we were just on a four by six foot life raft and the waves were pretty high. I actually wrote a poem about it. It's in one of my books. But it, uh, uh, you drop down in the trough between the waves and it'd go deadly silent. Not deadly. We'd go totally silent and then uh, you'd hear hear the wave coming just like a freight train roaring and hissing and up the ra- wave you'd go. If you were lucky, you went over the tops and up on top, the wind was screaming. And then, uh, but sometimes every wave would break over or a break, go over the raft, fill a raft full of water and we'd have to bail like hell. And then other times the wind, the waves would uh, throw the raft, go sailing out through the air and then hit. One time we hit and bounced four times. So it's like a big flat rock just skipped. <laughs> and it was it was cold. We, this was before the days of survival suits, so we were just our shirt sleeves. We In fact, it was we got picked up uh, Thanksgiving, uh, the morning after Thanksgiving, so the 25th of November. Uh, yeah, it was cold, and uh, we were real hypothermic. We were, everybody was shivering and shaking. But the Japanese took real good care of us. They got our wet clothes off us right away. And, it was much of their clothes to wear, which were way too small, but at least it was warm in there, and then we had, the clothes were warmer than what we had on, so where we'd been. So, yeah, they took good care of us. When you were stuck on the raft, it was like, isn't everything in the world just like running through your mind? No, no, it didn't allow it. Uh, we didn't have any food or water in the raft. I laid down the ground. I grew up on pollutions, and I, I've been you know around that country all my life, and I, I know about attitude and about... Uh, Fright, being scared, scared uh, fear will kill you faster than anything. And uh, I just laid down the ground rules. Uh, there's no talking about food. I don't want nobody wants to hear how thirsty you are or how hungry you are. And uh, and you sure as hell do not talk about family, your wife, your kids. They they're not they don't even exist. The only thing that exists is the four other three men in this raft with you. And uh, we're just going to keep try to keep each get each other warm a little bit, and we're going to try to keep each other alive as long as we can, and uh, that that's it. And uh, that's where I, my head was, and that's where I tried to keep my crew's head, and everybody survived. I know uh, uh, some friends of mine died in the raft and uh, up in Shellacoff Strait, uh, where you could see land on each side. They were in the, water, the raft for only three days, and the weather wasn't nearly as tough. And they were all dead, and they picked them up. And I think it was because uh, I think I think there was. You know, I think it was because of fear, and, and uh, they gave up, and uh, you just cannot give up. At night, it's just, it's darkness. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was pitch black in the raft, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't, well, you know, we'd, sometimes we'd look out and see the waves coming, and uh, but it got to where we didn't even look at them, and just hang on when they hit. And I'd have two guys uh, uh, lay down. Like I said, we we're in our shirt sleeves, and it, it was uh, it was really really cold. And I'd have two guys lay down in the bottom of the raft, and there two of us lay on top of them and hold them, trying to warm them up a little bit. We couldn't stop shaking. We didn't, you couldn't sleep. Uh, we were just shivering and shaking the whole time. And uh, when I got too uncomfortable, we'd 
trade places. But a lot of times, though, you know, we would break order out and fill it full of water, and everybody had some start. We had one baler and one big sponge, one big scoop and one big sponge. By the time we got picked up, the sponge was just little pieces. So. <laughs> Um, the second time I was in a life raft, I was, we were only in there for uh, about an hour before the boat the boat started going down, and and uh, I got on, I got off of Mayday that time. The first time I got off Mayday, whatever, and uh, the second time I got off Mayday and talked to a guy, and he was turning around to come running for us. And I actually the boat was sinking, but I met, and it started it rolled over on the side, and I I was up on the flying bridge, and and, and I managed to bring it back up right three times. The fourth time it rolled over on the side, and I couldn't bring it back up. So I just walked down the side of the house and had him inflate the raft, and we got in the raft. And I hung on to the boat until it, it was a, I'd worked for a year rebuilding the boat, and uh, <laughs> it actually sunk out from under my hand, pulled out of my hands. I was trying to hold it. If sure willpower to hell that I'd still have that boat. <laughs> my will wasn't that strong. Oceans were stronger. And... You had a time which uh, our mutual friend told us that they wanted to amputate your legs, and that was due to one of these uh, getting stuck in a rifle. I'm sorry, say, say that again. Oh, didn't they want to amputate your legs with one of these instances that you? Oh, had? yeah. The first time my feet got frostbitten real bad, and the first uh, um, when they actually when we got aboard the Japanese trawler, and the Japanese took our uh, clothes off of us and I helped us get out of the wreck clothes and, and they pulled my shoes and socks off. My two of my crew members had rubber boots on and so they were fine and uh my engineer had lost his uh shoes in in the in the raft and so he was in a sock beat and he was fine but uh I had my uh deck slippers with my shoes on and uh I was figuring that we might possibly blow up on uh, the Pribilof Islands, which is 300 uh, miles offshore. We were actually halfway there when we got picked up. And I was, uh, and so I didn't want to take my shoes off because I didn't want to lose them. And the way the raft was getting thrown and tossed around from time to time, it was impossible to keep track of anything in there. And, uh, but anyway, so they pulled my shoes and socks off, and my feet were black from the ankle bone down, you know, that ankle bone that goes through. Uh, from there on, they were almost black. They were dark, dark purple. And, and the Japanese started, uh, boy, as soon as they saw that, they they ran and got uh, uh, big stainless steel bowls of warm water and salve and started uh, massaging my feet until they got color back in them. And then when they, uh, they uh, we got into Dutch Harbor, they took us into Alaska, into Dutch Harbor. And it was, uh, it was, um, um, uh, Storming, it started storming, and it was three days before I could get into the hospital. But they flew me into ANS Hospital, that's Alaska Native Service Hospital. And uh, the first week in there, I brought, the second day in there, way the doc, the doctor was watching my feet. He come in and he sat down beside the bed, and he said, "I, I have talked to you." He said, "This is a hard conversation because you're a young man, but." He said, I'm going to take both your feet off. He said, uh, I'm the leading frostbite specialist in Alaska, and I've seen lots of frostbite. And and yours is bad, and I'm t- going to tell you, I want you to prepare yourself. We're going to wait as long as we can, but eventually you're going to get blisters all over your feet, and uh, they're going to continue to swell and swell, and finally their skin is going to burst, and then gangrene is going to set in. So he said, once we see the skin bursting, well, we're going to just take them off just and try to save your life. And 
So I laid there for a few days figuring out what I'd do, and I figured I could just uh, put handrails around on the boat, and I could get around, and nobody noticed I was shorter if I was sitting in my wheelhouse chair. So I had figured out I was going to keep. I had to figure it out to keep fishing. I didn't like it, but it was, you know, what it is, and it was just part of the game. And uh, every day he'd come in and look, and finally, uh, uh, about a week into it, well, he was standing looking at my feet one day under the sheet there. And, and they had kind of a tent over them because they, they, uh, I couldn't stand to have anything touch them. And he said, I don't understand this. You know, he said, you got, uh, he said, we should be prepping you for surgery now. Uh, they'd swelled way up, and they got blisters all over them, but that just kind of stopped there. And I said, well, I understand it. And he said, how what? And I said, I got a praying mother, and I'm a firm believer. In There's not many atheists on the ocean. <laughs> I'm not... I. <laughs> I can't uh, say that I'm real religious, but I'm real spiritual. But uh, my mother was, and uh, uh, there she got contacted people all over the country through her church, and uh, and 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 um, I uh, believe with all my heart that uh, we got out of the life raft. We shouldn't have got. We were 150 miles offshore when we got hit in the dark, and if they'd have missed us by. 100 feet, they'd missed us by a million miles because it was dark and they didn't have big crab lights on like you see on Deadliest Catch. They just had their local working lights on deck, so they wouldn't have seen us and they wouldn't have heard us. And uh, and uh, same with my feet. I, I think uh, I'm, uh, I know it was uh, it was some kind of miracle from somewhere. It wasn't me that kept me and my crew alive. But as far as I know, no one else has ever survived a ride like that. And nowadays, I got survival suits, and and, uh, and my friends that died in Kodiak, out of Kodiak, there they had survival suits on, and they still died. So, partly it was uh, sheer willpower and determination and attitude, and partly it was it was some kind of uh, some kind of miracle. Man, that's in, that's incredible. And I mean, it, you must, after enduring something like that, you must. Do you feel changed at all? I mean, does it make you appreciate life, or is it just like... Well, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I have always been a lover of life, but absolutely. I have, uh, and and it also, like I said, there's no atheist on the ocean. It it uh, changed my outlook a little bit. You know, I... I, I uh, you call it God, call it nature, call it whatever you want. I, I have my own uh, theories, but I do have a deep respect for the... Uh, Life force that flows through all of us and connects us all. And I think even became I became more aware. I grew up in the Lucians, uh, where, where we hunted to, to live. We anything, any meat, any uh, protein to hit the table, we uh, either uh, shot it or uh, snagged it with a hook or something. And uh, but I became more aware of of how precious. Not I'm just one being on this little planet. But all beings value their life. I've watched. I started watching, and I don't care if it's a rat. You corner them and try to kill them, and they're going to fight you for their life. And and so it's you know it's just I, yeah I became way more aware. Like I said, I, I became more spiritualizing. Not not in a <laughs> I don't go out there and rant on street corners or anything like that. But I just for my own my own being, I just became more aware of yeah of the value of life. In general, I, I have a poem about uh, killing fish. I don't like to kill fish. I plan on killing millions more, millions of pounds more. But, but I, I respect that this being has given its life, so I can continue on. And uh, I think part of that came from that, maybe. And it, it, it just wasn't any big 
flash of blinding light and awareness, but over the years, I, you know, I've just, I've thinking about it and stuff, I've just became, I'd say, more and more aware, more of a live and let live attitude. I mean, there's a lot of other cultures that when they hunt and and it's more of a spiritual thing and it's it's mm-hmm. sacred. And uh, do- right, it it has become for me. I you know I still uh, I'll get a deer once in a while if I need it and so on. But I've never shot uh, shot a deer. I didn't apologize to. And when I I had crew members that wanted to go hunt, I'd never been never taken a deer come from city or something. I'd take them out and help get a deer. But we always have a little ritual. And I I sit there and I say, look in its eyes now. Is this dying? Watch his eyes fading out. Watch life fading out. You did that. You have to realize what you just did. It's not wrong, but you have to realize what you did. So yeah, and and uh, anyway, I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is like the first time because I've never experienced that. I I can't even. Can you describe what that is like to watch the life fade from a deer or any other sort of uh, creature? Well, it's sad. It, it, it's sad. Uh, it's you, it's a mixed thing. Uh, on one hand. The pride of successful hunter, you know, and and on the other hand, I uh, is sad because I've watched deer playing. I, you know, I've watched animals playing. They play with each other just like humans do, like kids do. I watched a deer and a fox play keep away around a log on the beach for about half an hour one time, just playing. And uh, so I, I I know that they're way more aware than uh, most people realize. And uh, so yeah, it's a. Uh, it's not something I'm going to stop doing, but it's something that I am aware of, and and I respect uh, the whole rhythm of things. Yeah, because you and you said you don't like killing fish, or is that what you said? No, I, I've got a poem that goes uh, over the rail and across the deck, gasping away your life, and I have to turn away as I see it fading from your eyes. I feel a pride of successful hunter, and this is a natural order of things. But sight of you dying by my own hand, a deep and lingering sadness brings. On my boat, my crew doesn't needlessly kick or throw. Insolence, I won't abide. On my boat, I demand respect for those who die. And someday when I'm no longer involved in all of this, my heart will crave the fishing, but my soul won't miss the killing of fish. (laughs) That's great. And how did you... How did you become? Uh, uh, what led you to writing poetry? Well, I just started doing it for fun. You know, I, I some uh, little funny thing would happen on deck. My one of my crew members would do something silly or funny or something, and I just a little four liner would kind of come in my head, and I for a while I just kind of you know give it a thought and then dismiss it. But then I. I think it was for my cousin. I had a cousin. One of my cousins was fishing me. It was somebody like kind of like it was closer than like more like a little brother. He did something pretty silly. I think we we're probably hung over or something, trying to <laughs> muddle through a hangover and keep fishing. And and uh, so I wrote a I wrote down the little four four line ditty. And I did this. And then a friend or somebody else did something on the boat. And I read it to him on the radio. And then somebody asked, Hey, you got any more of that stuff? And so I wrote a couple more of those things. And then. But for years, I just, it was just something I just did for just for fun, like that. And I read maybe I read on the radio to their guys, and I read stuff on the radio. But it was just kind of short stuff. And then uh, in 1985, my uh, dad, and my son, uh, got thrown out of a skiff and drowned. And for oh, about three years, three or four years, why well, it was pretty dark out. I was just 
I had all I could do was just keep my feet and keep plugging along. And uh, I didn't write anything. I didn't, nothing rhymed in my head or anything else. And and then one day I uh, a poem came to me, and I wrote down. I wrote three poems that day, and, and that kind of pulled the plug, and I started writing again. But it was still kind of for fun. But as I was, by then, I was complaining to, <laughs> we were all just kind of up in arms about uh, how we, commercial fishing and commercial fishermen were getting demonized in the press and, and it seemed like there was a lot of uh, uh, government uh, uh, rulings against us, uh, laws uh, partly for, some of it was, was good laws for, uh, uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, start making sure that uh, we still had a profession down the road, but some of it was just political moves, and, and so I started writing poetry about that and saying somebody ought to do something about it, speak up about this, and so I got a chance to do something on stage, actually it's here in Astoria, in uh, the first Fisher Poets gathering, and I, I think I did the second one, and, and I got up and I had something I wanted to say by then, and so I got up and and read my uh, poetry, and then it just took off from there. I, there was a film made uh, about the Fisher Poets, and uh, the filmmaker came out from A&E in New York, and I talked her into coming to Alaska with me for a while, and she came up for a couple of weeks and uh, and shot a lot of footage on my boat, so I had quite a, a, you know, a fairly good part of, of, of her film. And we debuted in Elko, Nevada at the National Poetry Gathering, and then she went out to San Francisco, and I showed it the second time there. And then we went back to uh, Martha's Vineyard and uh, showed it there. And anyway, uh, one thing or another, and, and uh, so that film kind of took me out and about a little bit. And then I just started doing more and more, going on the road more and more. So like now I'm, I go every year to the East Coast and and do some gigs and so on. And I do a lot of school stuff. I, I really enjoy school stuff. A couple of years ago, I did a prison back in Massachusetts, and that was really interesting. Uh, but it was it was good. It was a good experience, and and uh, I had fun with it once I once I got yeah. once I got the guys on my side. But oh, it just it seems like I mean it's not a culture that uh, you hear of. And then when I started learning about the fisherman poet culture, it's it's a pretty big world of of people who are doing it. It's gotten to be, you know, I, for, for years I didn't know if anybody else was even doing. It. I never heard of any fishing poetry. In fact, uh, when I started. It, trying to uh, spread it out around a little bit, it was because uh, cowboys had poems and songs and movies about them, and fishermen were just kind of out there over the horizon uh, making a living, living and dying. And uh, though there was a couple of old movies, you know, Spencer Tracy was in uh, Captain's Courageous and a couple of others like that, but there wasn't a lot going on about commercial fishermen. And I just decided to try to try to put a face to uh, that styrofoam tray of play a fish in the grocery store and try to tell people what was actually behind it, about the lives that were behind it, the, the wives that had to stay behind and raise families and, and shoulder all that responsibility while the guy was out fishing, and, and and the knocks that we take on the ocean as commercial fishermen and the heartbreak and heartache and so on, you know, so it, uh, I just tried to put a face to it. And, and pretty soon, I and it wasn't long before it seemed like there was a lot of people doing it, and they probably were all along, but we had never really, it just started we started becoming aware of each other more and more, and and now, yeah, now it's a big thing. Yeah, it's. Um, I don't think people in general think about where their food comes. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. maybe farmers a little bit, but it's it's interesting to to put a face to it. I think it's it's yeah. important. Sure.
culture. I agree. But one of the festivals I do, I really enjoy doing, uh, in, is back in New Bedford. And uh, uh, Laura Orleans uh, put that together, and her and some of her friends. And, and several years ago, she started. Uh, she and I was talking about tying the farms and the fishing together. And now she has booths come in every year when when we do our the. Uh, it's a working waterfront festival. It's called. But she now the farmer. There's farmers come in and set up little booths and have uh, fresh vegetables to show and sell and so on. So, and, and it, it 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 ties it ties together so well because uh, you're right. People aren't aware where their food comes from. You ask most people why it comes from the grocery store, but they don't think about the sweat and blood and dreams and heartaches that go into whether it's farming or fishing or whatever. It goes into actually putting it into the store for them. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's. It's generational too, and and uh, I met a fisherman in New Orleans. Uh, he was a former fisherman, but because of the BP Amico spill, and and he just couldn't keep up anymore. And he had he was driving a cab, and you, you know that was something that was that guy's life. And now he had to, and he was telling me how his his it had taken a toll on his body as well. Uh, sure. And I don't think people realize think about that i think they just think fish magically <laughs> appear in the as you said no styrofoam containers yeah yeah go guys go and just kind of fool around a little bit and catch a few fish and give them to the plant and they keep putting a store but it's not that way at all it's uh it's there's a lot of striving for and working for and long 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 days and and you know you come home to you might come home to an empty house and a note on the table saying adios jerk because <laughs> it's you said you go out there for four months and i mean it's not like you come home for dinner you're out there for four months correct can be yeah sure mm-hmm. the guys yeah and it's it's not just me and you know saying and it's uh the guy you, you you fish the seasons and when the season's open you got to go and, and uh it, uh some women are so good about understanding that and just being there and being so supportive and they're you know they're to me they're real special i i really try to honor them a lot and uh because uh, they have they have their own uh, rough seas to cope with, you know, whether it's uh, paying paying bills and taking care of the kids and being the lone disciplinarian and so on and trying to keep them out of trouble and keep them safe and so on. Well, we're out there trying to keep ourselves safe and make a make a living to support that. So it's it's a real it's a very complex. Uh, I think it's a more complex lifestyle than most people realize. And uh, so that that little tray of fish that. Uh, uh, is sitting there on the shelf for uh, uh, five ninety five or nine ninety five or whatever is there was a lot behind went into that and it, maybe not that special one but uh, uh, just the whole whole lifestyle of putting it there is every somebody's had a big dream to go and probably went way in debt to buy the boat that they took out to catch that fish and scared to death they were going to fall on their face and and who knows maybe somebody went overboard maybe they lost their best friend or something there. They heard about their best friend. I remember going and running into Sandpoint, uh, coming across the Gulf, listening to a very good friend of mine uh, talking on the radio. His boat was rolling over. It was nice weather, but it rolled over, and uh, he was trying to make it as far as he close as he could to the beach. Well, uh, an hour later, somebody came on the radio and said they'd picked him up, him and his engineer, and they were both dead. And the two boys were hanging on the mast. The boat went down shallow enough water. The mast was sticking out of water, and he had his two sons on the boat. And they were all right. They went out and picked them off the rigging. But uh, I, a few days later, I come by and I can see the boat underwater and see the mast sticking out. But Johnny and Sam are both dead. So, it, uh, you know, and 
you just don't you just don't hear about that and and that it should be people should be aware that farmers you know they go way in debt to try to get a crop in and get a crop out and and buy buy decent machinery and keep thing and and I've heard a lot of some tragic stories there too you know people get hurt get killed and uh, there's a guy right up the road here uh, his name was I think Magruder he was a uh, state prairie representative but he was also a farmer and he was going across the ditch his tractor flipped and crashed him a few years ago so you know it's 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 it people just need to be aware that there's it's it's just not as simple as as it seems it might make people a lot more willing to say grace before they eat. <laughs> to yeah. Be, I mean, to be, and, and maybe not just to uh, whatever created all this, but, uh, you know, to maybe we should just specifically pray to you <laughs> and and thank you. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, it sounds like I'm joking, but it's true because I don't think yeah. people realize, you know, you're, that's your, your life and your blood. Sure. Sure. Well, that's it, and if you know, that's all it would take. All it takes is people just to be aware. As far as I'm concerned, I uh, just be aware that uh, there was a lot of effort. When whether it's it's us out on the boats or the people working in the fish plants and the canneries and the processing plants, you know, it's uh, long, hard days. And and when we're fishing salmon, way the the kids are working in the canneries. They come from Europe and all over, but. They put in some long, long days, and sometimes if there's not many fish or something happens, you know, we just there's there's no fish or there's very very little fish. They're sitting there, and they've got they've got a lot of time invested and money invested into getting here and going to it. And they they have dreams of college and so on, and they can't always realize it if they don't get the overtime. And it's either ruling me long, hard hours or not enough hours to uh, to make what they need. So it's yeah, it's people just need to be aware of that. I think. And it's just about awareness. It doesn't matter whether it's that or uh, then being aware of the environment or being aware of uh, in politics of the things that are going wrong or right or whatever. It's but I, I do think that people get so caught up in living in life and it gets so complicated that they they lose a little bit of sight of what's really um, what's really important. And I don't know. I don't mean this to sound corny, but it seems like I think a lot of people have. In and you know, just day to day lives that are uh, maybe not so, you know, jobs that are not uh, so challenging or but something like a, a, a profession like yours, you're kind of reminded of life and death and uh, to a heightened level that it seems like you you would would have a more appreciation for and and uh, an awareness. If I don't hope that didn't sound goofy. <laughs> No, no, no. I understand, and I agree. I agree, and I think uh, you know. Uh, since uh, uh, going back in history, back to the machine age, when the machine age really started, and automation came in, and so on. I think we, uh, as a species, got separated from that a little bit. And I think before that, when people were most, fa- there was family farms, and there was family this, and family that, and people were living closer to nature and closer to the land, and uh, they're the sources of their, uh, um, kept them alive, their maintenance, uh, life maintenance. I think they were more aware, and I think we, between, uh, I think that was as a machine, and I'm not saying it's wrong because uh, I really like computers, and I like uh, my hot rod, and my uh, truck, and my <laughs> Harley, and so on. But I think. Uh, we have just been carried away from that awareness with the reality has changed uh, to, and it's, it's an artificial reality. And I think long run, 
it's it's why we have some of the problems we have now. And uh, if we could, when I go into schools, that's one of my one of my uh, messages. I I read them poetry and tell them stories, but I also try to work in there. Uh, be aware, be aware. When you go home today, when you look at the birds up in the tree there, and listen to them, just listen to them, just stop and look at them, or look at a tree, or look at a bird, or a flower, or something, and think about it. Think about what a beautiful little planet we live on, and it's small, and you need to take care of it. We all need to take care of it. And I try to get get that point across, too. And if I really believe if people could reconnect with the natural world a little bit and, and learn, find that respect inside themselves for the natural world, they'd start having more respect for each other. And I think as we get separated further and further from that, we in some ways we regress and turn into more primitive like a lot of places in the cities where it's dangerous to go it's not because of the cars or the the animals it's because of the people and that's and that's too bad because we are basically all in this little lifeboat together yeah did i lose you no i'm here oh, okay i, I, I just... heard a click <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. um yeah i i mean i agree and i think it's easy to get it's easy to lose your perspective in life and what's important. And, and I do think that's partly like people in, you know, they're a little pampered, a little, it's like, which yeah. is nice, I guess that we've, but it's also, we're losing touch with reality. It seems. And it's, it's kind of tragic. Sure. Oh, I agree. I agree. You know, I, I think I you know, pampered is a great word uh, is a great word. I think uh, we are. And I think we overprotect our, uh, our children. I worked hard when I was a kid. I think I quit being a kid when I was eight or nine years old. And the winter I was nine, my dad got sick, and I uh, every night after school I was on the beaches hunting, uh, trying to keep the family fed. And uh, I packed water and, and chopped wood and, and uh, worked hard. And it didn't hurt me a bit. And I, because of it, I think I have a, 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 a large respect for myself. And because I do respect myself, I, it's easy for me to respect other people and give them that respect. And I think uh, I, I have watched over the years, watched people uh, struggling to make a living and so on. And they're usually pretty well grounded. And I've watched people that were being handed everything by the federal government, and they pretty soon they lost respect for themselves and everybody and everything around them. And, and so I think I think uh, humans need need a, a bit of a challenge to uh, maintain their respect for, their, for themselves. Yeah. And because uh, you mentioned the, the federal government again, because you, you said a little bit earlier about fishermen and how – uh, and uh, forgive me for not being able to remember clearly, but you like how they were passing laws against the fishermen and making it more difficult. Uh, how are they doing that? Like, what is the government doing that's making it more difficult for fishermen to to fish? Well, we're getting more and more restrictive uh, uh, regulations, and a lot of it is doesn't seem to be grounded in biology. It should be the law should be grounded in biology. Management should be grounded 100% in biology, and it's not. It's just like everything else in this country. It's gotten so political. Uh, if you really want to hear it in uh, distilled versions of it, uh, the, the the talk to some of the guys in the East Coast. Some of them are there. There a lot of them are just getting legislated right off the water, and for no reason. For instance, George's Bank. Uh, that's a hundred and some miles offshore, and they they've got the government's got it all gridded out. Well, you have to set your uh, uh, vessel monitoring system before you leave, saying where you're going to go, and you, you so you program in this block, uh, this area that you're going to fish. 
Well, it doesn't work that way in reality. If you go there and there's no fish, you have to be able to just take off and go and find those fish. Fishing, commercial fishing is about hunting. Is about hunting. But uh, there they have to run all the way back to the beach and recheck, check in again and reprogram and then go back out and try another area. Well, you're talking a, a boat that might burn 20 gallons of fuel an hour and at $4 a gallon, you're running uh, 10, 15, 20 hours. Boy, it doesn't take long for that to add up and, and start cutting into whatever profits you might possibly make. That's just one little example. There's a, there's a lot of examples of, of and but uh, it's just, and so it's, it's just uh, here on the Columbia River, uh, we had the, uh, we, the Gillers, uh, we fished the river since the turn of the century. In fact, it built uh, Gillane uh, for salmon, built the uh, town of Astoria. Basically, it's, it, it was building on its own, but it, it was the strongest build, one of the stronger building blocks, and for quite a few little towns up and down the river. And uh, when they built the dams, they built the first dam when they didn't even put in fish ladders. It was, the salmon, the fish weren't important. It was about jobs and power. And uh, uh, it completely wiped out a uh, run of salmon called the June hogs, which were a huge, huge salmon. They averaged 75, 80, 100 pounds. And they went all the way up to Canada, up the Columbia River and up the Snake and so on, all the way to Canada. And uh, they're gone. They're, they're just not here anymore. They were completely wiped out. And uh, uh, the rest of the dams, uh, when they went in, it just ha- it hasn't worked. The fish ladders haven't worked right, and the fish has declined. And uh, the fishermen have taken the brunt of the blame on that. And it wasn't the fishermen that fished them out. It was the way that the, they were managed and so on. And uh, uh, now they're starting to come back. But there's a big move to try to push the fishermen off the river. It went to vote. Two years ago, I believe it was, it was Measure 81, whether or not to keep the uh, commercial fishermen on the Columbia River. And by 67%, the state voted to keep them out there. And uh, two weeks, I think, after that vote went through, the governor of Oregon said, no, I don't want them out there. I want them off. And uh, so he overrode the people and came up with a new plan that basically took them off the river and put them up in the side sloughs and stuff where there isn't really many fish. And uh, when the protests around people, well, we're going to program the fish to go into the fishermen. It doesn't work that way, folks. It just doesn't work that way. So it, uh, that's just one another little example. But it's and it's it's been a battle. It's it's trying to keep fishing. The offshore uh, draggers, the small draggers and stuff, are getting regulated right off the ocean, and uh, it's it's such an easy fix without just closing down areas and closing down, taking time away. Uh, for instance, oh, the draggers are pulling a big net behind them, and all they got to do is uh, regulate the size of the net, cut the net down to where, and let the guys keep fishing with a smaller net, smaller pr- production at any one time, but you can still make a decent living, and that would take care of it, and it'd keep the boys fishing, keep the boys working, keep the money flowing, and so on. Even if it wasn't big money, it would still be good, good solid jobs, but. Uh, it doesn't work that way. It's, they're being managed for the politics instead of for the biology. What is the uh, government's motivation for for doing this? Well, as, from what I can see, uh, and I'm not really, I'm not into politics. I'm not really, uh, but I, from what I can see, it seems to me like this country has gone corporate, uh, a corporation, this corporation, everything corporation, or own corporation efforts, and I think. Uh, the effort is towards uh, uh, big corporations, basically. Well, it happened in Alaska in king crabbing. 
they used to be that was a wide open fishery, and then they privatized the uh, stocks and so on. And it, and in a stroke with a stroke of a pen, they took 200 uh, uh, big king crabbers, average five men, five or six men per boat, out of the industry. That's a thousand jobs just up in smoke with a stroke of a pen. Well, we got to do that to uh, keep the uh, resource healthy, but uh, it wasn't what the one way. One way was wrong. And I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not going to try to uh, second guess on all counts, and and I can't, I don't have the answers to fix some of the problems, but I do think that they're uh, being approached way wrong, and and uh, like I said, I've said several times already, managing for politics instead of biology is not the uh, is not the right way. Yeah, that's an interesting because uh, would you say a lot of people are misinformed too, with uh, perhaps. Uh, you, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Especially yeah. with, uh, uh, I know, like, uh, the fisherman I talked to in New Orleans, he was saying that uh, people were, he was like, the fish actually are safe, It's safe. they're testing the fish in water so often that it's actually the safest he thinks it's ever been in that coast. And, I, mm-hmm. uh, and are people misinformed about what's in fish and, like, pollutants and all uh, all those sort of things? Well, you know, I really don't know about that because I'm not a marine biologist, but I do think they are misinformed about availability and about uh, the stocks, the health of the stocks themselves. Uh, uh, you know, if you, you you listen to a lot of the uh, rhetoric, the stocks are all disappearing, the oceans dying, and so on. And I do know that the, uh, uh, you know, I, I believe there are big dead zones out there and so on, but still, the. Uh, 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 there is, I talked talk to some of my friends that are still fishing bottom fish out here, and they're just about legislated off the water. But they say there's more fish than there ever was. It's just, uh, it's just they're just being managed to death. And I think, uh, so I think the general public is here and, uh, uh, yeah, is misinformed. And uh, basically, they're getting their resources taken away from them. And it's that uh, those fish don't belong to the federal government. They don't belong to me. They don't belong to you. They belong to all of us. And uh, we have a right, everybody. The people in Kansas have just as much right to fresh flay of salmon or sole as anybody lives on the coast. Not to, uh, to be sound conspiracy or whatever, but is, it, is there maybe, like, because there's so much farm fish these days, is that is, is there any correlation with with that, do you think, or is that just me? I don't really know. You know, I you, you hear well. You hear enough. You know, I, I and and I'm not a big uh, deal in conspiracy either. But uh, yeah, neither farm am I. fish, farm fish, and uh, uh, the farm fish that came out of Chile were were not healthy fish. And I've seen you can see them in the store. You see a flay of salmon in the store, and you can tell if you know anything about salmon at all. You can tell just at a glance which ones are the farm fish and which ones are the wild caught. Without even they got the farm fish. I don't think are as healthy. Uh, the ones that are reared in pens, uh, the one if, if the if the ones that are uh, are started out as smolt and then turn loose to the ocean and go out and and do the full survival cycle and come back, they're just that they, those are you know those are good healthy fish. But uh, and I don't know what they might be eating out there. I I've heard a lot of stories about uh, the Fukushima uh, nuclear waste and so on, and, and it's starting to show up in in offshore fish, and that may be. Uh, and if it is, it's, it's a shame, but we did it. We did it. And we need to fix it, figure out how to fix it. We need to figure out how to... 
nature is a good farmer. She takes care of herself and, and cycles up and cycles down and basically rotates her crops over the years. But uh, when humans, like when humans get in there and try to manage it, they just follow things all up. And, and we are, based, as far as I'm concerned, we are following our nests. Uh, you read about the uh, Pacific uh, vortex offshore there, the big uh, uh, islands of plastic, and it, the plastic is reduced down to, to where it's just microscopic almost, but it's still, things are eating it and dying from it uh, because it just, it, it's not digestible. And there's uh, the same in the Atlantic and uh, more and more plastic going in all the time. And, and we need to, we need to fix it some way or other. So yeah, anyway, that's, <laughs> but the farm fish, uh, if it, they're done right, I can understand, and I'm a commercial fisherman and I, I, I'm a lover of wild fish. But at the same time, I can understand the desirability of farm fish because you have a continuous flow, whereas we're seasonal. And I understand the economics of that, but uh, it's got to be done right. And when you just raise them in pens and they're they're just stuck in one of those spots swimming over their own feces and so on, that that's not right, and that's, that's not healthy. Yeah. You, you don't... The commercial fisherman isn't uh, in threat of becoming something that's going to come to an end. Do you do you think it's is it still as vibrant and and even generational and is it has always been? Yes, no. It uh, I think it can be. Uh, There a lot of uh, most of the fisheries now are limited entry, whereas the government says, okay, you can only have so many licenses out there fishing and so on, and suddenly those licenses have gone sky high in value. My uh, license to fish in Kodiak, and it's one, there's a regular fishing license you have to buy every year, which is kind of like a tax, but then the right to fish is limited uh, to a a certain, uh, so many. Right now, that that license alone is worth, right? I think they're going uh, there day we saw one for $75,000. And uh, that's not the most expensive license out there. Uh, so a young guy that wants to come into the industry and wants to, wants to move up through the ranks and get his own boat, like I did, come across the deck, he can't afford to. Because you have, if you have to buy the license for 75000 a boat that's decent or who, and it's competitive, it's going to be another couple hundred thousand, and you've got... Uh, You've got nets and so on and so forth. So uh, you're looking at a big chunk of change, and it, it's keeping the young guys. We're losing a lot of the young, really uh, bright guys that would uh, are good fishermen and so on, and they're, because they're going to find something else. They're smart and they're intelligent, and so they go find something else for to do for a living, and it might not be quite as fulfilling. But if it's more economically viable and, and more ease has a has a ladder they can climb. They're going to go, and why not? But uh, and I see that as as the biggest uh, crime of all, biggest shame of all, because uh, I came through the deck. I I started fishing when I was just a little kid, and by the time I was 13 years old, I had my uh, I bought my first seine boat, and uh, at 23 I was running king crab boats. And I come across the deck. I hired on my first king crab boat as cook. Fortunately, I didn't have to cook, but I could. But I uh, I didn't have to. I was went on as uh, I was already cooked there when we got there. Uh, but uh, I ended up uh, as deckhand, and then from deckhand I went into the engine room as engineer. I still worked on deck, but I was engineer, and from engineer I went to alternate skipper, and from there I got my own boat. And that, that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. And, and with this limited entry and the way that 
heavy-handed management now is just so hard for young guys, and that that bothers me more than anything else. I just because I I really enjoy watching the young people come into the uh, profession and uh, catch fire, get 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 the fever and and uh, <laughs> get the hunger in their belly. Um, and just to return to uh, the poetry uh, again, I just I was curious. Like, do you have a regular? Uh, writing schedule or approach, or is it just when it strikes you, you you sit down and do it, or is it something you just is it like fishing and you something you just got to do? Well, it's something I've just got to do, but at the same time, I haven't written a, a poem now in quite a while. Uh, but I've, I've been working on a book of uh, short stories about growing up. And it was growing up wild out, and it's about growing up out in the Lucians. But mostly, yeah, I. I uh, I used to try to I didn't have so much a, a schedule uh, as try to make sure that I wrote a poem every uh, at least once a week wrote a new poem and and a lot of times I'd write every night I'd write every night and uh, and I have to write it feels like uh, fishing is my love but uh, writing is my passion and it's not just the poetry I I'm been like I said, I got this the next book is is going to be short stories, and uh, there's I think I've got 24, 25 in there now, and I, I just love watching the words. But I, I really like poetry because I, it's more fun than uh, just writing straight prose because it's a challenge to tell your story and keep the rhythm and keep uh, keep the rhythm in it and keep the rhyme going too. So it's it, uh, it's just a little extra spice, you might say. Um, do you know when this book is going to come out at all? <laughs> whenever, whenever I can find a publisher, I guess I I have three books that I self-published uh, of poetry. One of one of them has uh, actually got four sections. It's got poetry. It's got uh, both light and light poetry, and one second section is called dark poetry. And it start uh, the dark side, and it starts out with a poem about my son, and not just about him drowning, but about his life. But it ends with my dad and my son drowning, and me trying to cope with it. And there's a bunch of I've heard. After I went public with that and started reading it in public, I started hearing a lot of stories about loss. And it's funny. It's a funny thing, uh, Matt. You know, sometimes I won't even plan on reading it. I uh, just kind of have a light presentation. And also I'll just get a feeling like somebody needs to hear Skeeter's song. That's the name of the song, the poem. Somebody needs to hear it tonight. Somebody needs to hear that. And so I'll read it. And almost invariably, after after the show, after the gig, by somebody will come up and say, you know, I lost my daughter, my son, my dad, my mom, whatever, and I have not been doing well with it. And I, but I'm going to be able to do. It. I'm going to be all right because you just told me that I can be all right because you survived losing your dad and your son at the same time. So uh, uh, I think I lost my train of thought there all of a sudden. But <laughs> anyway, that. Uh, um, you, but no, I don't really have a. a oh, the, the the second book, and uh, I like this third uh, uh, section up with just stories, like I told you about seeing a deer and a fox play keep away. There's a story about that, and a story about getting whales in my net and getting them out again and saving them, and, and so, and about uh, a baby sea otter that uh, some people come and got me because it was drowning in their net, and I ended up. Uh, I got it out, but it was pretty much dead. But I jerked my uh, shirt open and held it against my chest and, and uh, warmed it up and, and brought it back to life. And, and it snuggled around my neck just like my babies used to do. And and, uh, and it never tried to bite. It never tried to get away. It knew I was trying to save its life when it come out around 100%. And I gave it back to its mother, and away they went happy. Yeah, there's stories like that. And then the, then the fourth section is just kind of 
some of my thoughts and observations on the environment and you know and and what we're doing and what we where we where it looks to me like we're going, which is not a good good face. But uh, this the uh, and then the, my third book is just more poetry. But uh, I'm trying to this fourth one. I've got a I wrote one story in there, the first story in there about a dog I had when I was a kid, and I was going to try to write a, a book of for kids. But as I got going, I could I I don't know I just went on. I started writing more of the stories, and pretty soon I had a book going, and it's not necessarily a kid's book. But i got to try to find a publisher. Those sound incredible. And and, and Shane asked me to ask you about, um, he says it's just such an incredible story about when you shot a bear as a boy. (laughs) I don't know if that's a difficult question. Yeah, it's it's in the book. Uh, It's in the book, and the name of it is Painful Epiphany. And... uh, yeah, I was 13, and in our village, we lived uh, out on an island. There wasn't any bears there, and uh, no one in the village had ever shot a bear. Uh, we saw them all the time over in the mainland where we was fishing, but uh, no one had ever shot a bear. None of the kids, anyway. And uh, But we were all hunt- hunters. We were hunting all the time, and you, you get into a mode where you're hunting, and and, and it's, just, it gets, it's just a normal way of life. And... Uh, when your dad and I, uh, uh, let's see, I think uh, I found the first seagull eggs that spring, and that fall, dad got the first, dad or I got the first goose that had migrated back in. And and it was a cool thing, you know. It was nothing new. We didn't really just run around the village bragging about it, but it was, everybody knew, and it was it was just kind of a cool thing. And so I wanted to get a bear. I wanted, I wanted to shoot a bear. I wanted to have the uh, bragging rights, being the only kid in the village that shot a bear. And we were anchoring this little cove, up in the Bering Sea side, and a beautiful sunny day. Or, or it was the season was closed for the weekend, and we were just kind of waiting it out. And I was out on deck, monkey around. I saw this bear, big big bear, coming down the beach. I told Dad, I want to go get that bear. And he said, Why? I said, Well, I, I do. I just want to go get the bear. I want you to. He said, Well, yeah. He said, You don't want to shoot that bear. Yeah, I do. I want to go get that bear. He said, All right. You may want to. We'll take my 30 out of 6. And so we went in on the beach, got up on a little hill, and ambushed him. And as he came down the beach where I was ready for him, and finally I had, it all, had him in the scope in there. And, and uh, he was just ambling along the sea. He was, you could see, uh, I know, he was just stoned on sunshine. He was just ambling along there, not paying attention to anything. He didn't have a care in the world. And I squeezed the trigger. And I'll tell you, Matt, between the time that that firing pin hit that uh, primer and that bullet left in the barrel, I had... I knew I was wrong. I knew I was wrong, but I couldn't pull. I couldn't call it back. I'd already squeezed the trigger, and that, that bullet hit that bear in the chest. I seen the fur fly and the dust fly, and he jumped about three, four feet in the air and spun around and started running back down the beach, running away. And Dad said, "Dad was sitting beside me. He said, well, you got to finish it." And I, used to, I was crying. I was. It was such a painful thing. I was 13 years old, and I'd been in lots of fights, and I was a pretty tough kid. But I was, and I. I've been ashamed to admit I, that I was crying my heart out, and I kept pumping shells, and I finally, finally got him, finally killed him, and put him out of his misery. But uh, I, I guess that was the beginning of my awareness of the sacredness of life. <laughs> and uh, but you know, it wasn't I until years later, and after I was out of life craft, I guess, and it wasn't even the life. It just been a lot of things that came together, watching animals. Uh, when I was hunting and passing a shot because it was a sunny day, and I didn't think I 
I didn't need him that bad. Or it was storming and windy, and ah, hell, he's got enough problems. He doesn't need me blazing away at him. So, I. Uh, but that was that was the beginning of it right there. Yeah, and that was that was kind of a hard story to write. It was a hard story to tell. I, I I'll tell you something. I don't think anybody in the village ever knew I got I shot that bear. I I, I knew by the time that bear I had that bear down. This is nothing to brag about. This is something to be ashamed of. I've always been ashamed of it. But it's also kept me grounded. Yeah, it's a very moving story. Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I'm a little affected by it. Um, well, good. Uh, I I, I, I want to wrap this up, and I but before I do so, I want to I really want to thank you. Uh, I've interviewed a lot of people. I have to say, this is one of the ones where I'm the most affected and most thought-provoked, and I I really cannot thank you enough for taking out the time to do this. This has been inc- very incredible, and thank you. Well, thank you, Matt. Yeah, well, I, I, I enjoyed talking to you, and if you want to clarify anything or get any other, you know, anything else, feel free to call back. I don't, I don't mind. Okay, and I just want to ask, because th- this is very important, because I definitely want to read your books, and uh, where can people find y- these books and and get them? F- because if it's anything like this experience I just had, I mean, I want to read those damn books. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shane said he is going to see about through the summer, possibly putting them on uh, uh, what ebook. Okay, yeah. But uh, uh, what's your what's your address? I'll send you. Uh, one of my books. I'll send you my second book, my favorite book. Okay, but I mean, where can like my readers or I uh, mean my listeners uh, find your book? And if there is there anywhere they could find them on the internet or any of that? Well, if uh, I guess they could uh, email me and, and order one. Uh, a lot of people do. Uh, at uh, my email address is d h. Uh, D-E-N-S-M-O-R-E, just D-H Densmore, at uh, yahoo.com. And uh, I might not have too many with me in Alaska this summer. I usually take quite a few up to Alaska, but they usually sell pretty fast up there. But um, uh, if you go to, I believe there is some stuff posted I think in the tote there's uh, uh it's called in the tote uh it's a uh, a little uh, website that the guy put up and he's collected some of the poetry from other other po- fishermen poets and stuff and I'm on there and then I've got a web page it's uh what is it Dave Densmore Fisher Poet they google that up dot com they google that up I, I think there's uh there's uh, maybe an interview with Shane and some stuff on there also okay I'll make sure that uh, people will know where to find that thank you very much again Dave well I enjoy it Matt thank you thank you very much for listening to conversations with Matt Dwyer as I said before it really means a lot if you could donate use my Amazon link um, go to themattdwyer.com for all things Matt Dwyer. Listen to John Roy's podcast on feralaudio.com. It's really great. I'm on this week's episode, unless this is eight years in the future. Anyway, thank you very much for your support. I love you all very much. Power to the people. I'm a body, Tracy Charles. There's nothing.
National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. The NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.